Ruben. Uh, it's good to see everybody. Uh, si habla español, tenemos audiofonos por este tiempo en la palabra. It's good to be with you all. Some of us um, got to uh, celebrate with uh, Thomas and Brittany last night as they got married, uh, which was really great uh, to see them get married. And then just to put in perspective, uh, Matthew's grandparents are here today and they are going to celebrate their 70th wedding anniversary this June. And so we congratulate you all for that. Uh, tremendous. Tremendous. So we got newlyweds, and then we got folks who could tell us all about how to do marriage, right? And, uh, but yes, I, I officiated their wedding. And you know, every, every time I officiate a wedding up, up there, and you can just tell, they're just so happy. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, just wait. Yes, just wait. That's right. Uh, nothing like marriage uh, to give you some of the very best of joy in life, but also some of the most difficult parts of life. Uh, and uh, uh, I have done quite a bit of mediation, you know, in, as a pastor for married couples. And, you know, it's never easy. Uh, you know, it's never easy, you know. And, and, and I always, they always ask me, well, how do you do it, Pastor? How do you and your wife do it? You, seem, you guys seem so happy all the time. And I just say, oh, well, it's really simple. Um, it just Maggie always agrees with me. I mean, it's just, just really, really simple. <laughs> no, that is not what happens. Uh, I tell them, no, actually, I do the same thing that you're doing is we go and get mediation. That's right. Uh, there is, uh, you know, uh, what some people say that uh, the world would be a great place if I didn't have to hang out with anybody. Uh, people uh, can be the greatest source of joy, but also can be the greatest source of pain. And the Lord has something uh, to speak into that today in our word. Uh, you know, uh, before uh, we get into the scripture, I did want to announce with all the move, uh, we almost forgot, but Easter is coming up in like three weeks. Uh, we're going to have a great celebration here. And we always um, offer uh, baptisms for folks who are ready to be baptized. And so if you are, we're going to start the class next week. We've got to get on it and get you ready for Easter Sunday. Um, and so we already have a couple young ladies who are excited to do that. But uh, if you are interested in uh, baptism, uh, please come and talk to me after the service and we'll get you ready and uh, celebrate Easter together. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's, let's get into the word today. We are, uh, for those of you who've been with us, we are going to jump back into our um, Ten Commandments series that we've been kind of slowly getting through. Um, and, uh, and so, if you would, uh, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word today. We are going to be in Exodus chapter 20. Starting in verse 1. Sorry, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is in your neighbor's. Jesus, we are here today because you and you alone uh, are uh, the center of our life. You're the only thing that is right and true in our life. Jesus, we are here because we need you. We need you every day of our lives for life now and for life eternal. And Jesus, we declare that these words that were just read are not just words on a piece of paper or a screen. They are your living words, breathed with your spirit, given to us as a gift that we would know you and know your will for us and know how to have the life that only you offer us. And so Jesus, would you remove all tiredness? all apathy, all distraction, that we would be able to come with a full open heart to hear your word that you have for us this morning. We need you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Well, as we jump back into this series again, I need to give uh, props to my favorite Bible teacher, Pastor Daryl Johnson. This is uh, his sermon with me throughout. Uh, And so... Um, uh, here we go. Well, during the week that Jesus was crucified, he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. In this answer, Jesus summed up the entire law, the entire uh, Bible under two great loves. The vertical love that we have toward God and the horizontal love that we have toward each other. Love is the fulfillment of God's laws and rules to us. It means that if we seek to obey the greatest command and love God with everything we got, heart, soul, strength, and mind... We will obey the first four commands that were just read today under the Ten Commandments. We will not have anything else in our life that we worship except for God. We won't have any idols. We won't misuse or abuse the name of God. We will keep the Sabbath day of a rest each week to give Him our time. Right? And then if we seek to obey the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbor as ourself, it means we will obey the last six commands that were just read today. We will honor our parents. We will not commit murder. We will not commit adultery. We will not steal. We will not spread false rumors about people. And we will not be jealous of what other people have. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear Jesus say, love God with all you got, I think, totally, let's do this. When I hear him say, love your neighbor as you love yourself, I think, totally, let's do this. But then when I hear specifically what that means to love God and my neighbor, I think, oh boy, God, I might need some help in doing this, (laughs) right? Can you feel me here a little bit? Uh, When we hear the specifics of what God means when he says, live by love, we realize how much help we need, 
how much help outside of ourselves we need in order to obey God. We need a Savior, someone who will come and give us a new heart and a new way of living and thinking. And we have to remember this today as we get in on the Sixth Commandment. That's where we're at in this series. The Sixth Commandment. Very simple. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. We are going to need our Savior to obey the heart of this commandment. I I mean, we got to say it first. It's so tragic that God even has to tell us this commandment, right? It says something about how, we, how messed up we are as people that we would think that it's okay to take someone else's life no matter how young or how old or how deformed or how evil. I believe that God doesn't just state this command like a robot. I believe it gives him great uh, grief and agony and he gives this command with great emotion. I believe God is filled with horrible agony every day of our existence because every day of this world, somebody is murdered from the mass killings that we saw in the school in Florida that have been so many tragically throughout this year to personal murders of revenge or gang affiliation to greed-motivated killings all the way to just horrible tragedies like the six-year-old boy who secretly took his dad's gun to school and ended up killing a six-year-old girl in his class. As someone said, we live in a culture of death. And it's going to take a lot more than just posting the Ten Commandments on the walls of schools to heal and change the culture that we live in. As Daryl Johnson argues, the foundation of this command from God is a protest of God against humanity. You shall not murder is a divine protest against us and how we're destroying each other every day. And this protest from God doesn't just end in his words and his commands to not murder. It ends at the cross where we find on one hand the most unjust heinous murder ever committed by humans, Well, on the other hand, we find at the cross the only healing that exists to break and change this culture of death that so oppresses us. Somebody say amen. Amen. Now, briefly, people often ask, does this commandment, you shall not murder, does this speak against war and capital punishment, like when the government gives the death penalty? Well, you see, this portion of our Bible was originally written in the Hebrew language, and in that language there are different words. Murder, kill, uh, for, for the same concept. And the word used here is not just general kill. It is specifically used for what we would describe as first degree murder. The violent, intentional taking of someone's life. And also the use in the great command, in the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. They're all singular. They're all speaking to individuals. So these Ten Commandments are not explicitly speaking about wars and the death penalty. There are other scripture that would guide a nation and how it should think about those complicated topics that we can talk about another time. But this command is focused on the personal uh, and the individual. All right. Now, many of us may be thinking, yeah, that's right. I got the message. Don't murder anyone. I I haven't done that. I don't plan on doing that. Amen, pastor. Preach to all those people to stop killing people, right? But Jesus does not let any of us off the hook. Uh, The late Billy Graham, uh, who just recently passed away, famous preacher, he traveled all over the world, and he was away from his family a lot. And so because of that, a reporter once asked his wife, have you ever thought of divorcing your husband? He's never around. And she said, 
Divorce, no. Murder, yes. You know, it was kind of her uh, humorous answer. Yes, many of us have not actually killed someone, but in our hearts, well, Jesus does not let us off the hook. You see, here, God gave these Ten Commandments on top of a mountain. He gave them to Moses, who then brought them down and read them to the people. Well, thousands of years later, God came down the mountain, put on human uh, flesh, and he took his protest against humanity a lot deeper. Consider his words here from Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who has taken you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Ooh. Now, now I hope everybody's got their attention fixed. Because, see, Jesus is very blunt and very real here. He shows us that we cannot just let our anger run free in our minds or our hearts or our voices. Because unresolved internal anger in our hearts is where the act of murder eventually emerges. What Jesus makes clear is that there is judgment when we murder, definitely. But there's also judgment when we let our anger run freely in our lives. Why? Why is Jesus so tough here? Well, remember, God gives us commands. Remember we talked about this. His commands to us actually reveal how we were created. They give us insight into how we're wired, what our DNA is from Him. And what God is revealing through these commands is how sacred our life is. The sanctity of our life and of every human life. We're learning here that every human life is sacred because every human life is a work of God. It doesn't matter the circumstances in how that life was conceived or in what conditions that life was raised. All life is sacred to God. And to be even more clear about this insight, life is sacred not because it is just life, It is sacred because it is a gift of God. No human being has the right unilaterally on their own to take another human life, whether in real or in their heart or mind. No human being has full authority to take a God-given life of another. And no human being has the right to take their own life because ultimately it's not their own to take. My life, it is not my own. When I wake up every morning and take my first breath, that is a gift from God. It is His sacred breath keeping me alive. And the same Spirit, I don't have any right to take the life of another, no matter their ethnic background, no matter their political affiliation, no matter if I'm wearing the badge of a police officer, no matter if I'm angry at the person wearing the badge of the police officer, no matter what they did to my family, no matter whether they're in the belly of their mother or if they're 95 years old. When we take a life, 
someone else's or my own, we are declaring that we are God and that we have a right to that life. And that's idolatry. That is false worship. That is rejecting the true God and putting ourselves on the throne. And thus, God says very clearly, Jesus says, we receive judgment. When we put ourselves on the throne and act like God, we are going to receive judgment. Let's, let's talk about suicide for a second. Suicide is tragically on the rise in our country. And you know, one of the root causes of suicide is the same root cause of murder. It's an obsession over the negative. It's letting pain go unchecked in the head and the heart until that pain begins to blind the person to reality. Specifically, the sacredness of life and the many good and wonderful aspects of that life. You know, maybe you have never killed someone. Maybe you've never attempted to take your own life. But I want to ask you a very serious question. Have you contributed to the culture of negativity and and the dysfunction of spending more energy highlighting and complaining about what is bad about your life and other people's life than highlighting what is good? You see, the reason why our young people are more depressed than in any other generation and more prone to suicide in any other generation is they, like the households they grow up in, are reveling in pain. The culture around us has gotten too far and it's now celebrating pain and dysfunction. So you cannot have any street cred unless you have been through a certain amount of pain. What that means is you can't have any real trust with someone unless you've been through a certain amount of pain. That is dysfunctional. That is not how trust is built. Right? You know, you can't be heard now unless you speak about and highlight and glorify the parts of your life that are broken and messed up. That is absolutely dysfunctional. The proof that we have built a culture of death is now the most effective way to get attention from other people is to talk about what's negative in your life. That is the best way now to get attention from other people. And then we wonder why our young people are struggling. Because this is what they grow up in. Why don't we spend most of our energies obsessed over the good parts of our life? Yes, we've got to be real. We all have pain. We don't want to wear a religious mask that always says uh, everything's good all the time. No, we all have pain. We should talk about that. But why don't we spend more of our energies obsessed with celebrating with each other the sacredness of the life that we have today? Right? And the, the beauty that we can find our life every day. Why don't we spend our energies talking about the sacred and beautiful aspects of other people instead of always talking about their faults? Why is it that when a group of friends get together, their main form of entertainment is to talk negatively about people that are not in that group? That is the culture of death at its foundation. That's what breeds suicide and murder. Why don't we celebrate where we see Jesus in the midst of the difficult parts of our life? Why don't we gather as friends and spend the time talking about what's great about other people in their lives? You see, when we build our relationships around an identity of pain and problems, then we simply encourage each other to always see the problems in other people which then leads to unchecked frustration and then unchecked anger, and then that leads to either suicide or murder. Murder does not come out of nowhere. 
Yes, there are mentally ill people that have committed horrible acts, but we cannot pin all murder and suicide on mental illness. You see, sin is the root of it all. That spiritual cancer that pulls us away from God, and it's fueled by a very real enemy that wants to distort reality and make us think there is no sacredness of life. There's no sacredness of my life and other people's life. Life is just bad, and I'm just going to upset. That is an evil, evil spirit that, it, that we are buying into, causing us to be in rebellion to God, in rebellion to the sacredness of life. And like physical cancer, sin grows if it's left unchecked. Most of us have seen this in our own lives. Most of us have seen what happens when we let anger fester. I mean, I'll admit, I think we've, I have, we've all been owned by anger at moments. We've all had those moments when we're done, we're like, where did that come from? That's sin growing like cancer when it's unchecked. And it is seeking to destroy us. And then it's destroying our families and our community. So what are we to do about this? How can we stop this tide of this culture of obsession over the negative and this culture of death? Well, maybe I can start answering that question by telling you about a, a, a moment that I had that was a little scary that turned into something very wonderful. I told you earlier that I, I do a lot of mediation uh, with married couples and, uh, and couples and I, many, many years. And uh, I had this one meeting one day, and I was super nervous about the meeting because I knew this couple had gotten to the point where it was really bad, like explosive anger. And I was really nervous, you know, uh, praying. It was a great day of prayer, I'll tell you that much, as I was getting ready for this meeting. And they come in, and they sit down, and they start going. And they start going, and they're going. And it's now getting very scary. I'm like, man, if this gets, I mean, they're just throwing insults at each other, screaming. And I'm like, if this gets physical, I'm dead. The guy was way bigger than me. And the woman, she would have broke my skinny butt in half. You know what I mean? It was just one of these, like, I do not want to be in this room right now, right? And so... I just, you know, I always establish the mediation. Hey, if we get into this, you've got to let me be the referee. When I call a timeout, you've got to respect the timeout. And they start going exploding, and finally I'm like, timeout. Praise God. They listen to the timeout. So we had a timeout. And then we came back together. And I said this. I said, listen, before you resume the fight, can I challenge both of you to pray for each other right now? And they kind of looked at me like, right. I said, could you pray to Jesus and just pray a blessing over each other? And in that prayer, can you just thank God for just one thing about the other person? Just one. Total awkward silence. And then one of them goes, okay. The other person goes, I was like, okay, pray, right? They prayed. They prayed to Jesus, and they prayed, thanking God for one thing in their life. When it was done, the anger was gone, and then we could talk about the disagreements in a reasonable tone. And by the end of the day, they were hugging each other, crying together, and making clear decisions of how to change things in their relationship. Praise God for that. You see, yeah, yeah, we can clap that up, yeah. You see... Jesus alone can change the culture of death in our hearts, in our society. That culture of negativity, as it grows unchecked, if we bring Jesus into that, He alone can can change this. He gives us, in His teaching, three examples of anger. The first is just the thought that doesn't get expressed. 
And the second is an ancient term, raka. That's like, um, in, in that ancient time, that would be like being sarcastically angry with someone. Y'all know, you know, when you're sarcastic with people, there's a sarcastic that we're being funny, where both people agree you can rip on me, but then there's their sarcastic where I'm really angry, I just don't want to really say it, I'm just going to be sarcastic. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe nobody else does this, just me, all right? right? That's raka, okay? And, and when he says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka is answerable to the court. And then the third example in this ancient, you know, it's, it's, it's translated here, you fool, right? For us, it's not as strong of a, I mean, you know, if you say it with anger, you can anger somebody. But in this ancient culture, that would be a full-on insult. That would be a bad word. So, right, you see what he's doing? Jesus is kind of progressing. He's going from the unexpressed thought to the little sarcastic anger that seeps out to then the full-on insult, Right? He's saying they all violate the sixth commandment, right? Because they all violate the sacredness of life. And so what do we do, right? How do we change and deal with anger and, and, and people who make us angry? How do we change this, this corruption in our hearts that wants to take us over and take our families over and take our cultures over? Well, it's interesting that Jesus does not give us sessions on how to control our anger and deep breathing techniques, although that works for some people. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't help justify our anger. He doesn't sit down and he says, well, Chris, let's talk about all the ways you've been traumatized and then you can feel good and and we'll be okay about you living in this anger. It's interesting that he doesn't give us creative ways to ignore or stuff our anger. What he does is gives us two examples of real-life conflict to show us the only way to deal with this internal war. One is an example that happens in church, and the other is an example of what happens in the world, in the streets. The church one is the most powerful one for us, in that it shows that we cannot be in right relationship with God if we're not in right relationship with each other. Let me say that again. You cannot be in right relationship with God if you're not in right relationship with the people that God has put in your life. It shows us why Jesus gave two commandments when he was asked, what's the one greatest commandment? Right? Because you can't love God if you don't love your neighbor. So when we come to pray, when we come to worship as a church, we are to, Jesus is not being figurative here, we are to literally stop try and work things out, and then come back to pray and worship God. Because God is saying He won't take your worship. If you try to come into this place or into your own uh, place in your home to pray and worship, and if you try to say, let's just forget about my anger and bitterness, but God, you're awesome, God's going to be like, I'm, I'm not taking that. Because I live in that other person, and so clearly I'm not so awesome because you're angry at, that, at me. Right? Uh, he will understand clearly if you are hurt and why you're angry, but then he will say it is time to stop justifying and time to stop ignoring, and let's deal with this right now so that thing you can be freed from this. See, the first thing that we have to do is we have to own up to our capacity for this sin and this rebellion against God. We can, right, we can all get to that point in our heart where we're, right, taking another person's life that is not our own to take in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. We have to stop believing the lie that, well, we're not as bad as the other people who are actually killing people out there. So I can stay in my anger because I'm not going to act on it. 
Or, you know, we have to stop going, well, because that person hurt me so much, I, I am justified to stay in that anger. Right? If we think it is right for us to stay in anger over someone who has wronged us, then, God, then it is right for God to stay in anger over you because you are wronging God all the time. That's just a clear teaching. Jesus says in many different ways. You judge, you're going to be judged, right? If we think it is right for us to stay in anger over someone who's wronged us, then it is right for God to stay in anger with us for how we've wronged him. We simply got to own up to, this is difficult, I've got this, and I see it's wrong, I'm violating the sacredness of life, and God, forgive me, and then help me forgive others. You see, that's the great journey with life, with Jesus. Right? I can't tell you how many people, they think that the way you mature with Jesus is just memorize more Scripture right, and go to more church functions. Yeah, we need to get more Scripture in our life. Yeah, we should be totally in church. But I've seen people who for 20 years have memorized the Bible and they go to all kinds of church functions, but they're bitter in their hearts. They judge people, whether it's their neighbor, a family member, or somebody who's not in the same political party as them. And God is trying to tell them, read your Bible that you memorize so much. You cannot have a relationship with me if you live in bitterness. The journey with Jesus for our whole lives is this. It's every day, I need your forgiveness. We get in touch with his forgiveness on us, and then that gives us the capacity to then go, God, now I can forgive. And it's day after day after day. We can't stay in it. My, my ability to forgive somebody two years ago does not give me the ability to forgive somebody now. i got to go to God now when I'm hurt to be able to receive forgiveness to pass it on. You guys with me? And then finally, once we own up to this, once we go to God for forgiveness, we just got to do what Jesus says. And what he says is, go to the person and try to make it right. Try to work it out. We've got to trust Jesus more than our own instincts. And we've got to try to reach out and make things right with that other person. It might not happen. When you reach out, that person might be unwilling or incapable of reconciliation. Reconciliation is bringing two broken parts back together. Remember... It only takes one person to forgive, but it takes two people to reconcile, right? And if you go and try to work it out and that person's unwilling, well, you still need to forgive, but you have to wait until they're willing to deal with their stuff in order to be in right relationship again. You know, I've reached out to people and it's gotten worse when I've reached out to them, right? I've reached out to people and they've gotten even more entrenched in their defensiveness. They've gotten more angry more willing to make things difficult for me. I've been rejected in my attempt to talk things out. This is the one that happens, you know, that's so tough. I've been made to feel like a fool, which is sort of the classic response uh, of sin. When I reach out and I say, hey man, uh, you know, I think something, that was a little awkward, that conversation, or that kind of hurt a little bit, right? The classic response is, wait, there's no problem. Why, Why are you being so sensitive, Chris? There's no problem. When we both know there's something there and they just want to stuff and ignore it. And so what they do is they make me out to be a fool, like I'm just so sensitive and weak. And you know what I've realized over the course of time is I just got to be secure about that and realize, no, actually, I'm the one that's now not a fool before God, right? And I'm just doing what God is trying to say, right? It's sometimes tough. It's, it's risky, 
right, to obey Jesus to try to reach out to the person that hurt you. But here's what I can say. Every time I've reached out, no matter what the response is, I walk away freed from my anger. They no longer get into my head and I think about it day after day. I am freed. And I am now clean before God and I'm telling God, I, hey, they're not ready to work it out, God, but I see the sacredness of their life. I'm praying for them and I uh, am freed from this anger. Uh, Amen. But then, man, then if you reach out and you try to work it out and they're willing and you work it out. I mean, there is few joys in this life that can match the joy of two people, whether it's especially family members, but friends, or and all of a sudden they come to a heart-to-heart where they apologize and they, they forgive each other. And they, that is joy. That's worship of God. That's living in the sacredness of life. And so... Man, to experience that joy, if I've got to get through some defensiveness, if I've got to get through being mocked as, oh, being too sensitive, I'm going to keep pushing through that. You know, um, you just can't put a price on that. Let me have the worship team come on back up. And, I, and I, as I want to end, I want to tell you uh, one of my favorite stories of the power of Jesus to break the culture of death in forgiveness and reconciliation. There's a woman, she's now with Jesus in heaven in, in fullness. Her name uh, was Corey Tenboom. I've talked about her here and there uh, over the years of this church. Corey Tenboom, uh, she, um, during World War II, she hid Jews um, to keep them from being captured by the Nazis. But eventually she was caught, and then her and her sister uh, and her father, they were all taken to a Nazi concentration camp. And in this camp, she suffered horribly. The guards there were horrible. You can imagine, as a female, just what these guards... It was just a really horrible thing. Um, her sister died in the camp. And, uh, and then the war ended, and she was able to get out of the camp. And after the war ended, she, Corrie ten Boom, was a strong Christian leader. Strong woman of faith. That's why she was hiding the Jews. She realized after the war, she created this house for all these women that, is, that were in the concentration camp to just come and live together and heal. They were so traumatized. And then, she just re- and then people were asking her, how? How are you dealing with it? How do we deal, right, it, it, with all this horrible violence? And so she began to teach on forgiveness. And then all of a sudden she finds herself back in Germany in front of all these Germans. And she said it was one of the most eerie experiences because it was right after the war. And she's teaching the Germans, God, He wants to forgive you. And they could not hear it. They were so shamed at what their people had done and what had gone on, right? These were not the people that had gotten prosecuted for war crimes. And she said she preached on God's forgiveness. And she said... The only time after she was done, it was totally silent, and then people just started walking out. They just could not take it in. But one guy stayed as she was packing up her stuff, and he got close to her, and she's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, and she realized it was one of the guards that was in her concentration camp that was abused them so badly. And she said the ice just began to just freeze all over her and her heart and everything. And she, her hands went in her pocket, and she just kind of guarded herself. And this guy came up to me, this guard came up to her and just said, 
um, I was in the concentration camp. You know, he didn't remember her because there was thousands of people, right, that he was... And he just goes, I believe that God forgives me. I have given my life to Jesus, but I want to know if you forgive me because you were in my camp. And she said she's sitting there and it felt like forever because she could not respond. She had no feeling. And then in her mind, it flashed. She, this house of women that she had been taking care of and she... She had realized the only women that could recover and live a full, uh, get their life back were the women that were, for, that were truly forgiving the, their, their, these soldiers. The women that were holding on to bitterness were staying sick and staying malnourished and couldn't leave the house. And so she said, Jesus, I can't feel any forgiveness right now, but I know that my will can change the temperature of my heart. That's a beautiful phrase, by the way. I know my will can change the temperature of my heart. So Jesus, the only thing I can do right now, because this guy had his hand out, I can lift my hand, but you bring the feeling. And so she just lifted her hand, and she said as she began to shake his hand, she felt a warmth coming from her hand all the way into her heart. And she found herself crying, saying, I do forgive you, I do forgive you, I do forgive you. And she said, I left that time freed from all the pain that I had been caused there. You see, you see, it all comes down to how you understand your life and the life of those around you. It all comes down to your understanding of God. The reason for lingering anger and for bitterness and the reason for the culture of death that we live in is because we do not have a high view of God. We are too focused on ourselves and especially the negative aspects of myself and everyone else. We need to turn that energy to a passion for God, a clear hunger to understand God and a desire to worship Him. He is better than you can even imagine. While we perpetuate the cycle of violence, he let himself be a victim of that horrible, murderous culture of death so that he could stop the cycle. The more we love Jesus, the more we think about all that he has done for us on that cross, the more that we grow in love. It's a lack of love for Jesus, the crucified and now risen Jesus that keeps us from throwing all of our anger on him for that healing. When we love God more, we will love his creation more. We will love our lives more. We will realize he is truly with me. No matter what my family is like, no matter where I live, no matter what is going on socially, I can find God in my life so I can celebrate my life because God is so good. And when, and when we remember who He is, how, how we can, that eternal persevering hope that He has for our lives, we can persevere in hope for other people's lives that have hurt us. If you are breathing, you are a sacred life. If you're alive today, it's because you're loved by God. He has hopes for you. He gives you worth and value beyond what you have taken in. And you can let your bitterness go. You can let your bitterness go about yourself and other people. You are loved by God. And He has made you sacred. And you can let it go. Stand with me. Stand with me and let's respond to Jesus. I hope I've convinced you it is Jesus alone that can turn the ice in our hearts into warmth. And so as we worship...
Some of us just need to stay there and worship and give God every aspect of our hearts. The hurts that have been committed to us, the bitterness, the self-justification. We need to let it go to Him. Some of us know we need to come and get prayer. And I'm going to ask our leadership team to come and be around these edges and up front. You come and you can share as much or as little as you want, but you can just come and get prayer that, um, that Jesus, He would change your heart about how you view your own life and how you view the lives of the people that have hurt you.